0: environmental conversations on creative art, scholarship and teaching. This this is ECOCAST. Ecocast. Hello and welcome to ECOCAST, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment. I'm Gemma Deer.
1: And I am Brandon Golm.
0: So today ECOCAST is one year old, so we have something a little bit different from our usual format. Um, This is our quick fictions episodes, which means that we're going to be hearing a whole host of very short creative writing of 300 words or less from a wonderful international range of authors. Um, But just before we get to that, it's our birthday.
1: Yeah. Happy birthday us. Happy birthday us. This is, it's been, it's been a year. And I, I mean that, considering the year it's been for a lot of us, I mean that in In a good way, at least as far as as the podcast goes, I think this has been a really wonderful year in in that regard,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. We've had some really wonderful people on um I feel like yeah, for me as well, I've kind of you know I started off uh recording the podcast in my in my bedroom in Boston, in my tiny boiling apartment last summer and then and then moved to Germany um but there's been you know it's been this kind of continuous thread that's run run through this like very big life change for me um
1: yeah say and same I I mean I was I think we we kicked it off as I was you know kind of coming back to Kansas after you know I was out here for a few months and then went back to Pennsylvania for a few months and then we kind of kicked things off as I was coming back to Kansas and actually getting my feet under me here a little bit and stuff like that. So it's, it's been a nice, it's been, it's been a nice kind of consistent thing to look forward to every month and and talking to new people and hearing about all the wonderful things that, that people are are researching and writing and, and mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah. I definitely have been, you know, thinking about work and, and talking to people who otherwise wouldn't have been on my radar that aren't really in my area. Yeah, um, same. Do you have, has there been like a highlight for you? Any favorite oh, episodes?
1: Man. I think I, I, I'm going to go with a two-way tie here. Um, I think uh, I, I really enjoyed, and, and it's, it, it's mostly, uh, I think a lot of it was just, they were uh, just really great conversations uh, was with uh, Thomas Easley. Uh, I really, mm-hmm. really enjoyed talking with him. And uh, Jason Allen Payson, uh, I really, really enjoyed that one as well. So I think those were those were my two favorite of the year. Not that again, I, I, everyone was was super enjoyable and and really, mm-hmm. really um, had had wonderful conversations. Um, obviously, the the D and D episode uh, was was uh, near and dear to my heart in many ways. But um, yeah, I think I think Thomas mm-hmm. and, and and Jason were were my two highlights. Yeah, and Jason
0: yep. has been our most popular episode as well, no? Yes, so, yeah. So that's yeah. a that's a popular opinion. Um, I would agree on those, but also like going right back to to the early days, all the <sighs> way back when we were young. I did. I loved talking to Una Chowdhury just because mm. she was so like enthusiastic and infectious, yeah. and I think I feel like maybe like my audio setup was a bit shit then and maybe we were a little bit more like clunky and rusty and finding our feet so it's maybe kind of objectively not such a I don't know well made episode but like I do just remember having such an enthusiastic conversation and it was just really fun to do um
1: yeah, so, and th- that—that's—I that, think that's funny that you you bring that up too, because there was a lot of—I <laughs> uh, don't know if I want to say floundering, but a lot of <laughs> figuring things out in those early episodes, and uh, you know, just for a peek behind the curtain too, we we kind of you know we would record things um, and then just kind of release them uh, as we kind of you know figured out like what made the most sense. So we didn't have similar things. Like we don't want to have two poets back to back or something like that. Um, So things were kind of released out of order uh, necessarily from when they were recorded. But um, I think it's funny that just thinking about how uh, you know, from a listening standpoint, like, man, there's like, well, they're doing this or they're saying this. And I wonder how many people notice those things, but we promise, you know, we've got a good, uh, I think we've got a good, steady, solid, outline now for our episodes that we should have some nice consistency for the next year and, and the year after that and everything going forward.
0: <laughs> yeah, we have, we have found our groove. And if you want to, I mean, we'll do all this at the end, but you know, if you want to be on, let us know, tell us yeah, your ideas, definitely. come and talk to us. We want to hear from you.
1: Yeah. And, or just feedback in general. Like we would, we would love to just be hearing, you know, if there is a particular episode that you just really enjoyed and, and, um, you know, anything like that, or you have some feedback or, or, um, you know, you, you know, we, we were talking about something and you just, you have, um, you know, a few comments that you want to add to that conversation, um, that, yeah, that, that would be awesome. I think if, if anything, if, if I had to pick one disappointment for the year, which I don't think there are, there's really anything disappointing. I've, again, I'm thrilled with how, how this year has gone, but if I had to pick one thing, um, that's the one thing I, I would love for us to to kind of um, to 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 get more of is just that that just kind of interaction with the audience and, and hearing some feedback and and that kind of stuff. So yeah, there's yeah. there's your there's your homework, everybody.
0: <laughs> All right, should we get into root words? Should I get yes, into the root words? Let's um, do it. So since we're doing quick fiction, our root word for today is quick. Um, And some of you may be wondering why we're calling it quick fiction instead of the more usual flash fiction. Um, And this is because as we said in the call out for submissions, It's in collaboration with Professor Nicholas Royal from the University of Sussex in England. And you'll also hear Nick reading a quick fiction later. Um, And he's been running live quick fiction events for many years now. And the reason that he chose the word quick over flash has to do with the etymology that I am about to explain. So in some ways, of course, quick and flash are synonyms. They both signal speed or brevity. But the word quick originally comes from an Anglo-Saxon root meaning alive, living or animate. So, for example, the philosopher David Hume wrote that in cases of heresy and witchcraft, the inevitable doom was to be burned quick. That is, not to be burned quickly, but to be burned alive, to be burned quick. Um, or Similarly, Elizabeth Gaskell writes in The Poor Clare that her former self must be buried, buried quick, if need be. Which again means not speedily buried, but buried while alive. Um, And quick has also meant to be pregnant to have life quickening inside oneself, as in Shakespeare's Love's Labour's Lost, when one of the characters says, she's quick, the child brags in her belly already. So this meaning of quick as lively gave rise to other meanings, the contemporary meaning of speed coming from the fact that what is alive is full of energy and movement. Um, And the vulnerability of what is alive also gave rise to the sense of the quick, meaning the sensitive skin under the nail, which is where we get the phrase cut to the quick, meaning when something finds the most vulnerable or painful spot. And so we can see how this rich history of the word adds something to the notion of quick fiction that flash fiction doesn't quite get at. This is fiction that is not only fast or brief, but also, as Nicholas Royal remarks, quote, alive, vigorous, sharp, agile, perceptive, swift, even impatient, but also sensitive and vulnerable, like quick flesh. Quick fictions are about writing that is not only fast, but also alive, energetic and sensitive. So with all that in mind, let's get into our quick fictions. In What Follows, we have 25 stories from writers from all over the world, um, including one each from me and Brandon, um, which you are going to hear in alphabetical order of the title of the piece. Um, Most of the authors have read their own pieces, but there are a couple that have been read by us when the author couldn't record it themselves. Um, and you can find information about all the authors in the show notes for today's episode. So we hope you enjoy.
2: My name is Huiying Ong, and this is Afterburn. It is so immensely difficult to come close to a sun. After exposure, it's a radiant heat that the body craves. After exposure, absence feels like loss. In Mandarin there is a phrase Wang Pu Liao, very romantic, a phrase caught full of longing and not romantic at all. In absence, craving cannot be fulfilled by anything material, anything other than the energy of contact resonance. She wakes into the cold from a dream of him. He is there, always, somehow, always. This time, he was in the midst of going somewhere, part of a stream of people in afternoon sun. Turning back to talk to her, his back slings low by his slouching shoulder. He asks her where her writing is going. The image of his printed tips for writing a good book short story sent specially to her sits on her mind tell a short story with three characters at most it says one scene one clear arresting image how to tell him this writing is on hold for as long as the world is not a single scene a clear image holding the sun in her belly feeling neat feeling nausea she looks at him his eyes ask Whose story are you trying to tell? Where are you going? She looks before her and sees the swell of a human wave in motion towards some place. Behind them, leaks, points of light. Beings appearing, living, reproducing, dying, seeding, flickering between states of life. Most of this land is being disappeared. But remember how water flows, how water renews old into new. People fear the heat of exposure. It's normal. Come close to rare love and it burns you. Come close to rare earth and it mines your body's wealth. But stay. Hold the body. Fill it in.
3: My name is Christopher Collier, and this is called Birthday. Hunger. Yes, I could call it that. As desperate, clawing, light-headed. For now, it is only a metaphor for me. But what scares me is what's coming. Creeping like a peachy glow under fingertips and around the corners of eyelids. Wet in the morning. Wishing I was back there then, I can hardly put words on it, like an ash tree trust in salmon-scale chain mail. All these things are gone. That forest, the flowers, that old beech tree, the cold caramel-brown brook, the hoverflies, the grassy riverbank in the morning of the world, and a pair of sun-white butterflies, courting. Spinning, orbiting their own swirling sunshine star. And us, sneaking into the river by the bluebell wood, and swimming there in the shimmering, in that dancing, that chill of pure light. There, the glossed rocks, the warm hum of the peat, the taste of linden flower, and that green, green, green bursting of the world Fizzling like fireworks
4: on a lake. My name is Scott T. Starbuck, and this is Crew. Some of you will recall that storm off Peru when I told you if it gets bad enough, we'll all huddle in the galley with oxygen tanks until we're out of air and then say a final goodbye. That storm broke almost miraculously. And later at Port Callow, we had a renewed gratitude for air, beer, vibrant colors, and the shape of women. The long voyages between there and this moment were varied and interesting. However, this time I am sure there will be no rescue. A wonderful freedom comes knowing one's death is imminent Highly traveled neural paths fade as laws, cultural narratives vanish to be replaced with unregulated hedonism, Buddhist meditation, and everywhere in between. All kinds of side trails open if you let them, numerous as uncounted stars. The absence of an immediate audience makes things possible that were not possible before. In similar conditions, I have heard stories of men removing their clothes and screaming like banshees or waterfalls, depending on one's view. Others wrote letters to lovers, wives, husbands, children, future generations, corked them in bottles and tossed them over the side. Some drank what they had or had gifted to them to be as unsober as possible at the end. A few prayed or sang or wept, and one laughed hysterically like a madman. At this point, it doesn't make much difference. It's between you and your real or imagined god or gods, goddess or goddesses, or in my case, to the great mystery, as some of you have heard me call it. I haven't gotten to know all of you as much as I would have liked. In gratitude, Captain Ed.
5: My name's Naomi Booth and this is Dead Zone. There's a certain point in summer on the south coast of England when, at night time, The air and the water become the same temperature. The world is black and amniotic. Aaron and I walk into the sea without touching each other. We begin to swim towards the pier. A little way out he calls, wait up, we should stop here. I turn over onto my back. The sky is studded with broken light. Sounds from the beach reach us intermittently here laughter, shrieking, music. Closer by, there is the clink of floats fastened to the pier. Something trails past me under the water. My skin prickles at the contact and I move away from it. When I was young and learning to swim, I was afraid of being touched under the water by a fin or a tentacle or a claw. Now that fear seems quaint I've heard what happens out at sea The collateral damage of animals caught up in nets The forever chemicals that accrete all the way up the food chain The dead zones where detritus overwhelms the living We should swim back in, Aaron says You go, I say, I'll follow When I look for him again, there is only the broken surface of the water, the plash-plash of the waves against the piers' stilts. I turn onto my back and then I feel that anonymous touch again, ribbons of softness gliding towards the deep, trailing past and underneath me. I let them touch me then without turning away. It could be jellyfish, or the edge of a shoal of mackerel, or a plastic bag, or a broken fishing net, or whatever's left of an animal tossed back to sea, drifting terminally.
6: My name is Maggie Light, and this is Family Dinner. I look at the table and let out a desperate sigh, slumping in my chair, tabulating the carbon and methane from all this meat and dairy, the 500 years it will take that plastic bottle of salad dressing to decompose in the landfill, leaking pollutants in the soil and water for centuries. How was the protest, Mom asks. A failure, I say. That's nice. Dad likes to make a mockery out of grave matters. Pass the roast, will you, son? Despondent, I oblige, trying not to smell the juicy marinade, trying to remember the methane, the cow's miserable existence and eventual slaughter, the exploited workers, the melting polar ice. My dad watches me hover over the plate. You want a slice, son? You probably need iron, sweetie. Why don't you have a little? Take the night off. I don't need pot roast, I shout. No one does. What I need is kidney beans. A tense silence falls on the table. Dad breathes loudly with his eyes closed. Mom says, "We hear you, Shepherd," using this new slow, soft voice. You need kidney beans. They've been talking to a therapist about how to deal with my anger. Really, how to deal with their anger about my anger. Since these sessions, Mom talks to me like she's a zookeeper and I'm a wild animal. Dad does the loud breathing. They make me go to therapy, too. Nan, the psychologist, is super off-base. Like all adults, she thinks my fury at the climate crisis is about some other childhood wound. Is the end of the world not enough reason to rage? But to avoid hearing Dad breathe like that again, I decide to actually take Nan's advice. Critique only every fifth crime against humanity and the non-human world instead of every single vile act.
7: My name is James Burt and this is Final Thorns. There is a tree that only grows in one Italian valley. Its hooked thorns have a peculiar shape, driven by convergent evolution with the local ant species. Each looks like a tiny key. It is said, if you can find the door opened by one of the thorns, behind that door you will find your heart's desire. The boys make these thorns into charms, some of which are sent to those who have emigrated from the valley, as a reminder of home. Once, the trees filled the valley, but now their territory is in retreat. The older folks say it's a change in the soil, the younger ones say that it's a change in the temperature, but everyone understands that one day there will be a last one of the trees to flower, then none at all.
8: My name is Başak Almaz, and this is Global Summer House. In a world in cosmos, here I welcome you to our new summer house. To our globally warmed pale blue dot. A.K.A. blue planet once, burning planet now. How could I know I would hate summer this much? Once, it was always sunny only in Philadelphia. Now, so is it everywhere. Are there enough words to describe how much I've missed swimming in the sea, lying on the beach? Hmm... The beach. We had a summer house in a lovely seaside town and I would go to the beach every single day when I was a kid, when the sea wasn't boiling hot. What about snow? Could I ever guess how much I would miss it snowing? I used to hate snowy days when it was so freezing cold that you would get ice burn. Yeah, there was once burning on the other way around. You wouldn't know as it snows no more. This is our global summer house with no beaches but risen seas, with no summer breeze but heat waves, burning planet as it is. It is good to have a summer house in a world where no one fancies one. God bless our AC units and boats and bridges. Do we know what happened? Yes, we saw it coming.
0: This piece is by Andrew Hadfield and it's called Hoggish Mind. It's a dog's life as a sailor, swabbing those decks all day, brown trouser time during storms, worn out rowing, scaling masts. What's there to like? And that's before you think about the others. It was okay looking after sheep. I quite liked them. They didn't take the piss, sing awful songs, and they are quite nice and quiet and don't smell all that much. Eat all day and just have a shave every year or so. That's the life. But, of course, there's only so many can look after them, as the old man said. So, I ended up at sea. Nightmare absolute bloody night-sodding mare, if you get my drift. No pun intended. Madness. Chaos. Thought I'd never get back. Then we landed on her island. Paradise. Well, just pleasant at first. Nice beach, shady, big fruit, odd swim. The captain was rather taken with her, so we stayed. I mean... It's not as if she was a bad-looking woman or anything, but she didn't do anything for me. Then, after a feast, things got even better. When I woke up, I couldn't stand and didn't want to stand. I was as pink and hairy as I'd ever wanted to be and had these really cool feet. The others had got so much more civilised and interesting. We scoffed acorns, rolled in mud to keep cool, no pun intended, farted a lot, and, well, not much else, really. Now that was the life. That was paradise. One day, it all changed. For the worse, obviously. When I woke up, they had been transformed back into beasts and were heading for the ship's. I could just make out the captain shouting, We will all make history! Maybe, if that's what you want. But I wasn't going back.
9: My name is Barbara Crystal, and this is Nature's Noises. The increasing pitch of a dog's bark, declaring the presence of an invisible force in its yard. Everyone ignores it. Both the bark and the caw of birds are drowned by the avalanche of rocks cracking against each other as cars pull in and out of the cascade of driveways. Only the squirrel stops to stare at the wind rattling the trees, sifting through the maze of branches until it is finally sucked in by wind chimes. The kids are busy screaming above the rat-tat-tat-tat-tattling of leaves, jammed in the spokes, another bark, only this one is baritone, and accompanied by the light tinkling of a bell hitting a chain-link fence. Stillness, silence, it feels like the world has stopped, but for the buzzing of a fly and the slap on the leg, there is nothing. Something has called them all inside. The bang of the fridge door, the click of the remote, and a dialogue of fiction flows from a small box. Words making noises, making thoughts, making connections.
10: Hi, I'm Eric Logs, and this is Normalized Mind. Clouded. Stunned. Outside, crowds pass with banners. Save the earth, is written on one. Through the windows, triple glazed, all sound is muted. The computer fan wears its hypnotic drone, while a scraggy man crashes repeatedly through the office door, half-stumbling on his long, white beard, He holds a spade full of coal like an ancient knight's lance, and fills the roaring stove. I risk a glance out the window. An email pops up. Buy happiness! Borrowedly, another look outside. There's no planet B. Images of drowning land and rotting fish. My pulse quickens. My throat tightens. I click the buy button from the email. The order confirmation lands in my inbox. Indifference and calm in my body. Muffet, parched. Outside, the tipping point approaches. An inferno of blood and flame. The heat presses against the windows. The computer fan fights it shrilly, while they continue to drop off offers for patio-eaters. Next to the screen is a small box, always in reach. The Methuselah keeps running to the stove, the coal is gone, and his hands are full of spirit. With hysterical laughter he sprays the fuel over the burning stove, dancing around the fire like Rumpelstiltskin. Outside, people are still standing with their banners, and running against the inferno. Wake up! shout the banners. We have to do something! Now! A thought scratches at my consciousness. My heart is printing. My hands tremble. I reach into the box, swallow my blue pills. And slowly, the uncomfortable scratching stops. Gives way to white noise. Pictures of sea, sun and shells. In my hand, an ice cream cocktail in a plastic cup with disposable umbrella. Sitting under a patient heater on the north pole.
0: Is Gemma Rowan dear, and this is overnight that summer she spent the nights with a fan blowing and a water-soaked towel in place of a blanket, the only way to get cool enough to sleep in a dark that was unable to throw off the day. The heat refused to dissipate with the setting of the sun and instead laid heavy over every surface. the kitchen counters, the sagging sofa her glazed limbs. Thrumming under the sleep of that summer were visions of choking dust storms and burning trees, the world's water sucked away by solar winds, the scabbed skin of the planet cracking off and leaving behind a layer of orange-brown dust, like dry rot or the crumbled surface of Mars. She would wake to find the once-sodden towel entirely crisp, dried like a desiccated skin shed from her inescapably mammalian body.
11: My name is Kate Wright and this is Petrichor. Before rain falls, the earth releases a scent. The Australian Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, the CSIRO, termed it Petrichor. They write... The smell itself comes about when increased humidity, a precursor to rain, fills the pores of stones, rocks, soil, etc. with tiny amounts of water. While it's only a minuscule amount, it is enough to flush the oil from the stone and release petrichor into the air. Petrichor is the longing of the soil. Petrichor describes an earth remembering rain. Petrichor is memory tinged with anticipation. Petrichor is the past in the present that speaks of the yet to come. Petrichor is in my memory too. It is a memory of the living world, shared across bodies and lives. It smells like a childhood summer. It smells like the sound of rain hammering down on a tin roof. The scent lingers in the air, an echo in my thoughts, awakening in me a desire to return to something untouchable, Some prior self, an earlier feeling lost with age. I follow the scent of rain on a Proustian journey through gullies, down watercourses. Petrichor is the scent of an old record player and the scratchy warmth of familiar songs by Fireside. Petrichor is the scent of my father with a wheelbarrow full of wood escaping a stormy sky. Petrichor is kangaroos at dusk. Petrichor is gumboots and slushy undergrowth, an overflowing creek. Petrichor, collecting kindling, my small body tilting with the weight of the wood. Petricor, ankle deep in mud, fishing for trout. Petricor, the laundry bucket full of yabbies. Petrichor, that cubby I built out of bark in the bush, but could never find again. The country of memory is a country of rivers. Some wide and flowing, some dry and deserted. Some you can follow, but with some, the country is too harsh and too threatening. Some you can only just hear they're so far off, and some carry you away completely.
12: My name is Meenu Akbar Ali, and this is Road Expansion Programme. On my way to work, with Monday morning blues, I drove by the usual scenes and routes. On my way to work, with Monday morning glee, I drove towards the roadside line of trees. Entrapped in my house for months on end, driven almost insane by mechanical silences, I looked forward to greeting my green pals again. Shock and grief broke on my skin once I discovered the site of ruin. My earth upside down, my bent companions gone, Islamabad is torn. The government has decided to open the city again for necessary development.
13: My name is Peter Boxall, and this is Rota. When we were children, my sister would try to impose order on our disorderly lives. She drew charts which assigned domestic duties to each member of our household. She attempted to train our untrainable dog. She made sure my school uniform was clean and dry on a Monday morning. She thought then that things could be made to work, to make sense, and her thinking so made me think so too. But she is old now, and so am I, nearly as old as her. I go to stay with her sometimes in the remote house that she has lived in these many years, the distant place that she moved to when her faith ran out. She wakes early and moves aimless about the house, a long white form in an old white nightdress. She remembers little, either of my life or of her own. I ask her, do you remember our dog? Do you remember when you tried to train our dog? She assumes a pensive air, as if trying to recall, but she does not remember our dog, or her belief that it could be trained, or the ardency with which she tried to assign To each of us, our roles. I butter her some toast, and together we look out of the window at the empty sky.
7: My name is Nicholas Royal, and this is called Seaford Beach. A customary trope, eco-writing starts with coordinates. Mid-May, cold, rainy, windy. Here, at an edge of crowded southeast England, the shore is deserted. Just a cluster of gulls farther down, parked up asleep, destined to scatter as I approach. I walk the damp, banked shingle beside the crashing, sucking waves. I think of Gassendi's riposte to Descartes, Ambulo, ergo, sum I walk to think, I walk, therefore I am I walk the shore, unsure Words of the dead return Some recycle better than others I think of Arnold's Dover Beach With its darkling plain and sea of faith Retreating down the naked shingles of the world How daft and ethnocentric that lament sounds now. How wars of religion carry on. How many millions retain strange faith, even in a toxic orange face. The sea, no matter how laden with plastics and death, will always win. It won't be poetry. The shingle I walk is defence imported years ago. Every few months, men in big, mucky, yellow dump trucks and bulldozers drag shingle back along the beach, away from the vital port of New Haven. Sea defence means humans fending off the sea, not the sea as defence, or the sea's defence of itself. We make language lie but it is unsure. Mid-May? About two centuries ago, Keats wrote, When in mid-May the sickening east wind shifts sudden to the south, the small warm rain melts out the frozen incense of all flowers and fills the air with so much pleasant health that even the dying man forgets his shroud. That England is gone now. I walk the makeshift shore beside the surging waves as the cold rain comes down. There is coastal but also linguistic erosion. Poems too are disappearing.
14: This is Marulia Reading Solar Field. She didn't know much about her past, or at least she couldn't remember. She must have been free one day, or at least that is what she wants to believe. Sometimes she remembers. She remembers when she could swim free in the ocean, when she could lay on the fresh grass surrounded by flowers and butterflies. Or maybe is it all in her imagination? When did she start working in the solar panel fields? It must have been many years ago, maybe 50, or maybe less. Imagine that in the past, people did not live for more than 100 years. This is so little time to live. Anyway, the solar panel fields are now everywhere. There is not much space left on Earth, so people have to sleep and work on the land below the solar panels. It is warm there. Not much to complain about, but you do not see the sun. They say it's safer like that. The sun is too hot. It can kill you. There are rumours. Rumours that people on another continent do not work on solar panel fields. That they actually have big houses and cars and go on vacations. But who knows? There are so many rumours in the fields. But even if it's true, she's still lucky. She assures herself. There are terrible stories of people working on the mineral fields. They for sure do not live more than 100 years. And this is not a rumor. Yesterday, some people were punished. They didn't understand exactly why. Some say one asked, why do we need so many panels? And someone replied, for the economies to grow. Hmm. People imagine crazy things sometimes. She looks at her watch. Ten more hours of
15: work. My name is Abby Curtis and this quick fiction is Spill. We headlanders knew about the oil spill before it was reported in the local news. The normally clean salt shore was darkly rainbowed and the shingle had a slick gleam. Solomon, the fisherman, brought dead crabs back in his nets and lined them up along the beach, black as their own shadows. Late summer is beautiful, the clouds like peach skin, but at the edge of everything, the sea was poisoned. The tanker is called the Prospero, and it collided with rocks, trying to avoid a fishing boat in the channel. It bled and bled from its damaged hull. I spent today with the headlanders, trying to clean seabirds. I felt sick touching them as they tried to move, tarred monsters, drowning in sludge. Solomon told me that crude oil is drilled out of the earth, that it is made from ancient dead creatures, zooplankton, algae, decomposed over millions of years into something else entirely, into dark energy. Before us and for eons longer than us. All of their tiny deaths, their ancient time, powering our lives. I thought of the holes piercing their resting places, underwater and deep in the rock. What should have remained buried and in the past, released in a rush of ink-black liquid. I made myself touch the birds washing their feathers in water and a special soap. I held them, covered in rot and breathlessness. I rinsed their fused beaks and their blinded eyes. We all did. It struck me that grief is like this, a slick coating of death upon the living so that they cannot breathe, so that they are sticky with it, unable to stay above the waves. It struck me. We are like those birds.
16: My name is Patricia Austin and this is the Ballad of a Dreamy leaf. From the birch tree at the edge of a park he could spot a clearing where magpies performed their never-ending game of poke, pick and perch. His daily routine was happy, pumping water, drinking sunlight, releasing chlorophyll and dreaming his dream. Ever since he was a budding little bull, he watched the magpie mums and dads build their nests and get themselves busy catching little worms for the little ones. The babies then grew bigger, could disconnect from the tree and get carried by the wind. He also wanted to feed a bird and see it grow wings. Spring passed, Then summer, and the tree was getting tired, it told its leaves it will now need to rest. The leaf offered it his chlorophyll, water and minerals, blushing profusely. He was content, he had a good life, but if only he had those wings, was the thought he kept pushing away. Finally, the day came when he let go of his dream. And on that day, the celluloid rope holding him to the branch burst open. He was flying just as high as the magpies. The wind rolled and pushed him into the clearing. This is fine, thought the leaf. I will be happy to say goodbye to the world from the place I've watched so closely my whole life. As he was getting himself comfortable, he heard a little worm ask him. Can I try how you taste? You look so deliciously crunchy and ripe. No problem, help yourself. The worm was delighted. It fed and fed. It will have healthy babies in the spring. They will play in the clearing. The magpies will poke and pick and perch. And their babies too will grow fat. That spectacle will again not pass unobserved.
1: This piece is by Yazid Dezele, and it's called The Dying Lake. The brilliant sky of Sapko village was masked by clouds of vapor that made the sun hang over the lake's head like an inferno. Langa, a gaunt young canoeman, naked but for a pair of dirty fisherman's shorts, paddled through the boiling serpents of steam rising over the water's surface. He swallowed hard not only from the thirst of the heat, but the fact that his heart was pounding. The lake's slow death meant not only the termination of his primary source of income, but the end of an era. He would be one of the last fishermen to exist in his generation. A series of long-colored poles Longa had stuck into the water showed that the lake had shrunk to one hundredth of its original size in the past year since the beginning of the drought. He wiped the sweat off his face and glided the canoe further out into the two feet of water that remained of the lake. Its white banks were beginning to crack like cement and mudbed sections jutted out like rocks. Longa scanned the deserted lake and frowned at the sight of dead floating fish and birds that drifted past with the smell of damp decay. The water stirred slowly, breaking into flimsy rainbow swells that caught his eye in the hot sunlight. With his eyes glazing bloodshot from the heat like those of a voodoo priest, Longa scooped a handful of brackish water to his mouth and tasted crude oil in it. My name is Brandon Golm, and this is The Trestle Tree. Here. Dew gathered across its bark as the temperature dropped in the night, and now the morning sun bounces through the condensation that pools and drips off its knotted wood. Thick, low branches crowd and cover the ground around it. More branches, not as thick, reach into the sky. The wind incites an awakening shudder greeting the day. Beyond. Another tree, and another, and another, and another, and... Some greet the morning alongside their siblings. Some bake in the midday heat of late sun season. Some lay their branches in slumber, wind-waving the day goodbye. Some groan. Some growing. Some searching. Here. Insects stir from the soil. A few fly finding leaves of golden-veined green. They bite and chew and swallow and fly and bite and chew and swallow They enter the crevices of the bark, seek out withered flesh, splintered wood. They bite and chew and crawl and bite and chew and crawl. Beyond. Three men approach a tree the height of the three combined. One climbs, two wait. Another climbs, brings tools. One waits, receives a rope. One cuts while one supports. One waits, holds rope. One cuts, one receives with rope. Here, the sun continues upward, skyward, downward, bathing the leaves, branches, bark in its light, drying the dew, the tree above at night, the sun above at day, a never-ending game of leapfrog between sun and tree. Beyond, one cuts while one supports, one waits, receives with rope, one moves down, cuts while one supports, one waits, receives with rope. One moves down, cuts while one supports. One waits, receives with rope. Here, a shudder in the breeze, a loss of leaves. Too early in the year for these to flee. A shudder in the breeze, a loss of leaves. Beyond. One moves down, cuts. One stacks. One leaves, returns with cart. One cuts, one stacks. One gathers tools. One cuts, two stack. One waits two-stack, three-stack, three-leave.
17: My name is Jada Otch, and this is They. Permafrost contains archives, bacteria, reindeer femur, mammoth fur, soil, volcanic dust, virus, bomb cloud. If you break it open, more they will spill out. You'll never have the moon but you can get some part of it in your eye for safe keeping. In a single night we gather archives of Thays, file after glowing file. Last year I dropped a glass in the kitchen and it shattered into dangerous Thays. I'll never find them all. Patient pieces wait for the right step. Desert tortoises smell with their throats. Each in-breath a gathering of odorous Thays. Mallow Bermuda grass, pulverized hay. The shell feels dead, but is a collection of searching nerves. In a Zoom talk, an artist explained that she took nearly 30,000 identical photos of a scrub jay named Frank over the course of a year. The archive kept expanding, but there was always more Frank. Every day, he'd arrive for more peanuts, their shells scattering into useless archives on the balcony. Frank, the archive, they annoyingly into her mind, uniting there like something she could almost call friend, but maybe more than that. Could her photos, weighing heavy on the cloud, impractical, really, a digital and emotional problem, gather more and enough of him, translate pixels to nerves?
18: My name is Michael Houston, and this is Think trees. Plato knew his trees and he was a thinker, so he started a centre for thinking about trees and other stuff. On one fine day, Plato leaned on a fluted column of the academy and cast his eye over the hills near Athens. Trees had once lined this gregariously green valley, but now the landscape was denuded like the skeleton of a body struck by disease, all the fat wasted away. Deflated, Plato levered himself off the column, wandered into class, yawned, and sweeping his cloak from around his feet, sat down. Then he pointed a long bony finger at Aristotle. Mate, um, grab me parchment on the effects of soil degradation and deforestation, will ya? Aristotle had figured out that trees breathed water into the air. The air rose on hot days, only to return to earth as restitution rain. He also thought that if you remove the trees, you reduce the rain. A bloody good thinker was Aristotle, a thinking person's thinker. Ah, oh, yeah, sure. What, time for an update? Queried Aristotle. Yeah, Let's, uh, let's sketch out that biocentric preservation idea. Let's start with the value of nature in and of itself. A big thing aided by tiny ceramic tanks of preserving fluid. So they talked about the connectedness of the environment and every person, that being the essence of human health. After a while, Plato sat back and smirked with a wink and a nod, Besides notions that human nature was not natural and that goats did terrible things to trees, Plato also thought that the root of all evil was ignorance. And indeed, what stories we tell ourselves in the absence of a good teacher that trees are only suitable for toilet
4: paper.
19: My name is Sanakshi and this is uprooted. The grass is always greener in memories. This was Amma's adage that had clung to my skin right after I had begun to comprehend words and be privy to her stories. The unadulterated, joyful world of youth stood as a stark contrast to my dry and mechanic youth where I was trying to meet deadlines or attempting to make sense of another vogue, ego-friendly diet. Her catalogue of memories was laden with vast stretches of green lands always bursting forth with flowers, fruits and all things Edenic, all things bright and beautiful, until the house needed more space to breathe. And so, when they came for her beloved Mehendi tree, Amma took to bed. I would have sworn at the congruency that each violent swerve of the axe produced on her body and the tree. I stood as a mute spectator witnessing the fall of my beloved and the beloved's beloved. The tree had been her friend for all seasons. There was not an instance when the two weren't together. In case Amma were to leave the house for a few days to run errands, she would take some leaves from the tree with her. They were inseparable. So much so that the tree, in all its fertile abundance, had intimately imbued her hair with its colour. They had begun to smell the same. And so, when the tree received a final blow, Amma jerked violently on the bed. I stood rooted, witnessing the fall of the tree, of Amma, knowing that the grass will always be greener in memories.
20: My name is Ashwarya Samkarya and this is Bitika makes a beeline. When her aunt told her that her favourite bowl of apples, peaches and cherries existed because of the laborious dance of pollinator honeybees, she befriended all honeybees in the garden and introduced herself as "beetika. Hungry for bee stories, she was told how pesticides and varroa destructor parasites were threatening bee populations worldwide. The word pesticide rang a faint bell. Helping her to remember, Nikita Masi told the five-year-old that the neighbour uncle whom they'd met yesterday on the mountain owned a pesticide factory. Realising that she turned her uncle hermit into a bad wolf to distract Bitika, she animatedly narrated how aphosyphilis borealis fly attached their eggs to bees and rob them of their sense of direction. Worrying about dying honeybees, the next day Bitika gave her aunt a silken handkerchief and asked her to draw happy honeybees. In the garden sat Bitika orchestrating her masi's embroidery. Golden, untwisted yarn was bobbing, unspooling and writing on the rumal. Her mind was overzealous, trying to communicate exactly how happy the honeybees were. Bitika's honeybees couldn't dwell near the highway. Vehicles would squat them, fruit would vanish, humans would die and then future Bhitikas would never know of honeybees' importance. Searching for nectar, they buzzed into Rajasthan's mustard flowers, Kashmir's acacia and Himachal's chrysanthemums. The reversible Chambarumal doubled the honeybees and multiplied Meetika's joy. Last being embroidered, they suddenly saw their neighbours, Bhitika's pesticide uncle, and destructor auntie, frantically running down the slope, screeching their lungs out. Himalayan honeybee had stung pesticide uncle's mighty nose. He was running back and forth with a mightier nose, and destructor auntie was running after him, with an iron chain to heal him. Pitika's chambarumal was finally complete. Flitting to the flower bed, Little
21: bee bust buzzed. My name is Taya Ferdak, and this is Without Applause. The monarch butterfly can fly over 2,000 miles to Mexico without applause. I hadn't finished the bunker list when the born rich guy from the hidden mansion down the too narrow road asked for it. I only managed one item on the list. I was too busy trying to organise a global applause for the monarchs on Twitter. Ha, ha, ha. Anyway, the born rich guy wanted to know what an ordinary person of the general public would include in a bunker for the collapse. I used to work in his gardens and prep in his kitchen, but stopped due to the cameras everywhere. I became too aware of my hands. What were they touching? When was he monitoring? Yeah, I felt caged. I flew away from all that. Anyhow, when I used to chop his organic vegetables immediately after harvest for the ultimate nutritional punch, he worked in that bunker of his with fingers that grew longer working tech. His ears grew lengthy listening for doom. I knew his frustration because he couldn't transform into an expat on Mars as he became a mole with an empty mansion. That born-rich guy would never develop antennae like the monarchs. Too bad. This led to my first thing on his bunker list as an ordinary person of the general public. Whom do you trust when you are a bunker mole? Ha, ha, ha.
1: All right, thank you again to everybody who submitted. Those were really, really wonderful. Uh, we hope you enjoyed listening to them as well. Um, who knows? Maybe this will this will become our, our yearly anniversary uh, uh, theme. As as we'll we'll always do some quick fictions on our on our on our anniversary. I think if if we keep getting wonderful responses like this, why not? Right?
0: Yeah, that could be really
1: fun. Yeah all right well as one last special little treat for you all uh gemma and i are going to do a uh end on a roll so uh gemma as always i've got my 12 sided die here and i'm going to uh give that a roll and then we will both answer that question before we say goodbye so we have number 12 what do you like to do on a day off
0: what do I like to do on a day off? Um, it depends on the season. I'm right. going to slip in more than one answer. Um, so will I,
1: but. <laughs>
0: <laughs> in in summer, um, either hiking or cycling. Um, at the moment, I'm doing a lot of cycling because I'm, I'm trying to get myself in shape for little cycle tour that i'm going to be doing in a few weeks um i'm gonna i'm in the south of germany in Bavaria now i'm gonna cycle up to the the northern coast because i really miss the sea the sea is so far away um so yeah i love to cycle and then um but in winter i also i'm really obsessed with with cold water dips so
6: so in winter
0: i like to go and find if I'm close to the sea, the sea, but, but where I am now it's it's a river or a lake, which I really I tried to go in the lake a couple of weeks ago and I was like, okay, this is why I do not go in lakes in summer. It's like smells like pond, millions <laughs> of insects, like duck poo, just nah. <laughs> um so yeah, I'm definitely a a winter swimmer rather than summer. So yeah. Interesting. That's interesting.
1: Me. That that kinda of terrifies me, but
0: but all right it makes you feel so good though like honestly before i started it terrified me and then now i just it's addictive and amazing and i love it
1: i just think about like anytime i've gotten into really cold water and just like that like (gasps) like the way your just lungs seize up in that instant of like yeah Uh
0: uh-huh uh-huh yeah but you just you just have to master it you just have to breathe through your nose like tell yourself you're okay and then you are okay Fair enough. until you're not yeah. <laughs> so you have to get out before that point.
1: Right. Yeah. You just gotta <laughs> awesome. All right. So I, I similarly have, have multiple answers. Um mine are mine are I think less dependent upon the seasons. Um, but uh I would have to say my my absolute favorite thing to do on a day off when I actually am off, like I have nothing I need to be worrying about. Um I am a fan of a good nap. Um I I you know, and a good like not I'm not talking about like a like a power nap. I'm talking about like you put something on TV for some background noise and you just, you zonk out for like a solid, like two to two and a half hours of, of just rest. Um, that's probably my, my absolute favorite thing. Um, but, uh, I, I also, uh, you know i enjoy uh as as maybe i've, I've mentioned before but i enjoy uh vi- playing video games i always looking for recommendations especially any recommendations for um games that deal with you know kind of environmental or ecological uh themes um and uh i too uh, enjoy a good hike and and uh, uh bike ride on occasion actually this this summer we've been uh, my wife and i have been uh uh we got up to Rocky Mountain National Park uh, a few weeks ago. we're planning to go back up there in September and we're going to Badlands uh National Park here in a couple of weeks uh we're We're taking advantage of our more centralized location within the country to uh, see some places that uh, we've maybe never seen before, so um, we're also looking forward to doing that on our days off so
0: yeah, nice and of course, we both love. Preparing for EcoCast. <laughs> yes, yes,
1: of course, absolutely.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. Awesome.
1: Great. Well, uh, I guess that'll that'll do it for for this one. Thank you all for listening. Uh, if you have an idea for an episode, uh, either something you would like to propose to us, or uh, a guest that you would like for us to reach out to and have on the show, uh, you can email us at asley.ecocast at gmail.com you can also find us on twitter at asley underscore ecocast Um, there's a pin tweet there uh, which has a google form as well that you can just submit directly into uh, for an episode proposal as well
0: and if you have enjoyed the show please help us to reach a bigger audience by subscribing and leaving a review Um, and of course we're also we're always also open to your feedback so thank you so much until next time see ya